Our passage this morning is uh, found in Acts, chapters 4 and 5. We'll be looking at the end of 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. Um, really, we've been talking about an origin story, the, the church. Even though the church begins in the Old Testament, in the book of Acts, we really do see Luke providing the account of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. The church went from 120 to 3,000 at Pentecost, to 5,000. And uh, in that second round of growth, persecution starts. And that's what we're going to see really for the remainder of, of these sermons is the persecution. It began outside persecution. That is, remember Annas last week and Caiaphas and, and the leaders taking Peter and John and arresting them. Uh, and we'll see more uh, challenges externally. But this week... The persecution is internal. And so that's going to make it a challenge. And, and for those, just to give you a heads up, this is a hard passage. We're going to look at Ananias and Sapphira. And at the end of the sermon, you're going to have complete and total understanding of all of your questions. will just be answered beautifully, I promise. Thank you. See, Shane, that's how you have to just wait for it a little longer. The chuckle, they just become, un- well, no, it's the uncomfortability. You just got to keep them, so... And I look funnier than you, so. Let's look now at Acts 4, verses 32 through 5, verse 11. Um, And and just to set the stage again, we're going to start with the second round of Luke explaining the church growth and and togetherness. So it starts off on a really positive note before we have uh, the case studies of Ananias and Sapphira. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to them was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds that was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as they had need. Thus, Joseph, who was also called the, by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with, the, with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, The feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. 
Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Verse 11, and great fear came on the whole church. So as I begin by praying, I just want to notice that we probably should feel some fear, right? When we come into the presence of the judgment of God, uh, certainly we want to understand the passage. We want to understand how grace is working, but we also need to recognize this in many ways is to be very much, create very much fear in us. So let's talk about that this morning, but let's start by praying Heavenly Father, you are an awesome God. As Jesus tells us in the Gospel of Luke, we fear the wrong things. We should fear the one who can cast us, Lord, either into heaven, bring us to you, or cast us into hell. Teach us to fear you, Lord, healthy, in a way that's driven by your spirit, that we would love you and press towards you and see your glory. Lord, help us to understand this text. It's very hard especially in a modern era, Lord. Teach us to understand it for your glory. Amen. I found out years ago, if you start a sermon at a low point, like emotionally, like difficult point, it just goes down. So I'm going to start on a higher point. We're going to talk college football. Anyone ready for some college football? Lift up spirits for just a minute, kind of. Uh, I was watching the OSU game yesterday, and they flash back to 12 years ago. I'm an OU grad, so I'm going to make fun of you for a minute to the famous, you know, I am 40 clip of Mike Gundy. Anyone remember that clip? How can we forget it? Well, as I was studying this passage and thinking about introductions, I thought of another clip from another coach, Saban, his famous line, right, rat poison. Listen to what he says. The media has, is pounding him for um, trying to kind of get him excited about a victory, and he's not excited about the victory. And so he says... I'm trying to get our players to listen to me instead of listening to you guys. All the stuff you write about, how good we are, all that stuff they hear on ESPN, it's like poison. It's like taking poison, rat poison. Wow. Now, the media didn't ride him as hard as they rode Gundy. I don't know. Maybe it's his um, record. Um, Sorry. Little jabs. This is coming off of a loss in a bye week. Rat poison, poison in general, it, it, the, the idea behind poison is that you think what you're taking in is good for you. You think, this will be healthy. I'll enjoy this food. I'll enjoy this beverage. The rat thinks I'll enjoy this, whatever you put rat poison in. And it kills you, right? It, it destroys you. And so we are looking at a passage dealing with the very beginning phase of the church, right? It sounds like a lot of people, maybe 10, 20,000 people. We don't know the totals. We don't know how they're counting. We're not sure if the 5,000 were in addition to the 3,000 or if it's a total of 5,000. The point is embryonic stages of the church. And the last thing that God is going to allow to happen is this sin of hypocrisy to come in and crush it. And so we are seeing the tendency here with Ananias and Sapphira and a lot of ourselves to want to kind of buy into the press, the media. That is, we want everyone's approval. There's this movement that started. Well, how can we jump in and be involved? 
that's going to tempt us to be hypocrites. And that really is the sin we'll talk about in a few moments. And what I want us to see is rather than that rat poison, let us realize the Holy Spirit's bringing water, right? In chapter 7 of John, Jesus says, I have come to bring water of living or streams of living water from within. That is what we want. That is what the church is built on. That is what's happening in chapter 4. And then Ananias and Sapphira filled by Satan's schemes come in with hypocrisy, and that's what shuts it down. The trick is it looks so similar. Like, right, what they do and what we're going to see um, Barnabas, or Barabbas, I just went blank on his name, Barnabas do, they're the same. They look the same. So how do we understand it? So we're going to look at two points. Where does giving come from? And then the case studies. And what we're going to see in these two points is we cannot flourish, we cannot be truly human, flourish, unless the Holy Spirit is feeding us. Does that make, that's the only way you can flourish. And conversely, when we are being fed by the Spirit like a stream of water, we will naturally have to pour it out. You can't stop that. You have to give it away. So those are kind of the two things we're going to see. We're going to start where it comes from and then the case studies of giving it away. So where does it come from? Where does this desire to give, this desire to be together come from? We see this in verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. It's so easy to read that and glaze right over it. What the Bible is saying all throughout is that what drives your life is found inside you. Right? What, what's different about Christianity than any other religion is the way you change in Christianity is not by external methods, but it's by an internal spring that wells up within you. The soul, the heart. It, it's so common throughout the Bible we understand it, yet if you think about it just for a moment, when you think about the ways you try to fix yourself, I try to fix myself, often it's external. And Jesus constantly is reminding us to watch out for this. In Matthew 12, he says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. And now he's talking to Pharisees. He says, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? And here's the key, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So the way you are designed as a human being is that your heart is designed to be this well of living water connected to the triune God, and out of your heart will flow life. That's the design. And we see that design carried out in Acts 4. The people have come together, one heart and one soul, okay, And what they are experiencing is the Holy Spirit poured into their lives and it's leading to their giving and sharing life together and being one body and one soul. This week, um, I don't even remember if we were discussing the sermon, but Shane Shane shared with me a book, so I now have his copy. So I think he, would you recommend this book, Shane? The Lighting and the Trinity. But we talked about it and I said, that is exactly what's going on in our passage. So I just want you to hear this author describing the Trinity. 
Oftentimes, when the word Trinity is brought up, we think theologically like, oh, okay, one God, three persons. We get caught up in the theology, which is important. Do that. But I think we can mess up in not meditating on the reality that the Trinity from all of time existed in perfect community, right? And so this author is saying God is creative. The Trinity is a creative God. The way the Trinity has always been is he pours out blessing and creativity. And then he quotes Jonathan Edwards. He says this, God's aim in creating the world was himself. But because this God, that is the triune God, his very self is so different from that of any other, that means something utterly different from what we would mean by other gods. The God, this God's very self is found in giving, not taking. Okay, this God is like a fountain of goodness. And so when he says, when he's seeking himself, he means seeking himself diffused and expressed. We don't use those words a lot unless you're into essential oils. Everyone, you have to buy the diffuser that gets it out into the room so everyone can smell it. Our God the way he is in his nature is diffused and expressed. So when we are connected to that God, our triune God, we will be diffusing and expressing him into our life and into our worlds. And that's the very thing you see in this, in this passage. Edwards, or the writer goes on quoting Edwards. His very nature is about going out and sharing of his fullness. That's what he's all about, in contrast of all other gods. So our God, by design, wants to be connected, right? And we see this in, in, in Genesis 1. Let us make man in our image. That, doesn't, that, that does hint at Trinity, our, but it also hints that this God wants to create a creature like himself to carry out his purposes, and that's what we are, and that's who we are, and what we do. And that's what we're seeing in this passage. The problem is so often we want to sort of, because of the fall, bend in on ourselves and stop the flow of water and start trusting ourselves. Um, I, I've been debating on, I use this analogy so often, I'm going to get ridiculed, but it's Dances with Wolves, so bear with me. I almost changed it, but it didn't work, so I'm going to go back. But it's the scene where John Dunbar, he's come out to the fort. He's trying to clean the place up. In that water hole, he's going in to wash something, and he sees a dead carcass. And so for the next scene, he has to clean the water out. He has to pull out all the trash. He has to essentially stop the damming process so that water can flow in and flow out and cleans that water source. That's just for some reason. If you want to hear the other illustration I was going to use, I'll just throw it out there. I, was, I did a... a a bridge dive once. Has anyone ever jumped off a bridge like in teenage years? And you go to this muddy water and you jump in. I've only done it once. And I remember coming in and seeing a dead cow. Okay, was that better? Should I have used that illustration? Okay, Shane says no. A dead cow in my water means poison, rat poison, get out. We, our lives, are made to be flowing. But I find in my life and often in our lives, what we do is we take the gifting, we take the blessings, we take all of the positives, and we think we're the source. And so we kind of dam off one side of the water, and God stopped. But then we also dam off the flowing out, and we're just this pool 
that begins to collect poison and become useless for society. And so what we're seeing in our passage, to even understand the giving we're about to talk about, physical and spiritual and otherwise, we have to grasp that the triune God, in rescuing us, is pouring into you and pouring into me with the very same force that we are to then be pouring out to the world around us. Think about manna. Can you imagine... When you, when you, if you were alive at the time when manna would just be at the doorstep in the Old Testament when the Israelites were rescued from Egypt, the, the, those few people who hoarded it, it was just, it's, it's like you don't understand. It's going to be there fresh every day. And that is the beauty of the gospel. And so God has poured into us that way, but we are often affording that when we aren't giving. So physical giving is in our passage. I want to show you um, verse 32 says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And listen to the next line. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. If you jump to 34, it'd be perfectly synonymous. There was not a needy person among them. But in verse 33, you have this interesting place that Luke takes us a little bit of a different route. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. What you find in that verse is the power source of the giving is grace. God's grace to them was so powerful that it created them a desire to help one another. And it's hard to get our minds around what was actually happening in this story. But if you just think about the situation, thousands and thousands of people had gathered at Pentecost. Many had left their homes. We aren't told if they had left them forever or just for a period of time. Many were from the region. But when they were converted, it changed everything. Christianity was not the friendly religion. Like you were, by becoming a Christian, you were taking a stand against Rome and really a stand against the Jewish church as well. And so it'd be very common in that setting, to have needs, like very real needs. I I guess I just picture if a tornado went down your street and your neighbor's house got hit and yours didn't, you would think, how can I help, right? And there was just this sense of community and helping that, that, that would come to each of us, and that's what was going on. And so this idea of helping each other would be the most natural thing, right? I think of the rich ruler who... um thought he knew the law, right? He thought he was living the law. And he comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, uh, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And of course, Jesus says, why do you call me good? He's testing him, right? Because he's not just a teacher, he's a Messiah. But the rich ruler said, I am following all the law. I am obeying all of the commandments. So Jesus said, perfect. That's perfect. If you've If you are actually following all the commands, then the next thing I'm going to say to you is a very simple thing. Sell all your possessions and take the money and give it to the poor and follow me. That's a a very, I want you to know, guys, that's a very easy commandment to follow. If Jesus Christ walks into your setting and you believe he is the Messiah, he's walking on planet Earth and he's inviting you to join him, that's a very easy thing to follow. Now, the look on your faces doesn't, doesn't seem to be agreeing with me very well. Right? 
But it's, it, but it is. And let's look at the case studies. Point two. Our, we're going to spend our time now on the two case studies. Case study number one is Barnabas, right? Barnabas is a. Um, it says a Levite, but he has land. We aren't told how that happened. He's a native of Cyprus, so he's traveled in to Jerusalem, and he sells a field. And it belonged to him. And he brought the money, and he lays it at the apostles' feet. That's a case study, right? So, we aren't told, but maybe that was like the first person to do that in the, in the community. Maybe Barnabas was the first one that thought, I know what I can do. I've got a piece of land. It's back in Cyprus. I can send a note, have them sell it, mail the, mail the proceeds, and I'll bring it to the apostles. We know that Barnabas also goes on to be a partner with Paul. He goes on to be a spreader of the gospel. The man is filled with the Spirit. But Ananias sees that action. Maybe he sees everyone's thankfulness and excitement. So he, this is case study number two. Ananias decides he's going to do the same thing. So he and his wife decide to sell their land. So they have a plot of land. They sell it, but they don't bring all of the money to the apostles' feet, and they die. That's not good. I, um, I served on one jury in my life. I was like in several, I've been called many times, but I guess I have a face or something. Maybe I make too many jokes, and they're just like, get this guy out of here. But this one case I sat on was a civil case. And um, so there's no criminal charges. It was just going to be for money. But a man had, and it's not, I'm not, I've got to be careful. It's a sad story. A man hits a girl and she ends up passing away. And so that girl's family is suing the man. But it turns out she's like crossing the street at a really dangerous place and it's no crosswalk and she shouldn't have been doing it. Here's why I'm telling you the story. All I could think about is that could have been me. Like, I would have easily have been that guy. He didn't do anything wrong. He's driving his car. That could have been me. How many of you, when you hear of Ananias and Sapphira, hate the story because you think, that could have been me? Anyone want to raise their hand? Okay, a few of you are honest. It is you. And in so many ways, it is you. And then in other ways, it's not you. So let me rescue you for a moment by saying it's not you. Here's why. This is really bad. Like what they do is really bad. They don't just give a little bit of the money away. They come and bring the money as if it's the entire proceeds. Peter says, um, you don't have to even sell the land. You could have kept it. That's fine. Or you could have sold the land and just told us you're bringing 80000 instead of the full 100000 or whatever the amount was. That's fine. The problem, Ananias, is you came in and brought the money in order to win the approval of the people, your peers. Rat poison. Right? You're trying to get everyone to like you, and you're lying to the Holy Spirit. And the reason I think that grieves the Holy Spirit so much is because of what we just talked about. The nature of the triune God poured out on this community is now being expressed in this beautiful act of giving and Satan is so crafty, he comes right in and says, I can, I can get my people to do the same thing. And it looks so close. And I'm afraid we would fill our churches with Ananias and Sapphira. Like, what's the big deal? And so often we say, what's the big deal? Because like my jury experience, could have been me, could have been you. Of course, 
Of course it could have been. And it often is us. We often are hypocrites, right? So I want to take a moment to explain what's going on and then come back to this bigger picture of why this is happening. Um, why do they have to die? I've talked about it to several of you. I've had conversations. Um, we really, as Christians, have a tough time when judgment is poured out like this, right? Let me remind you of what just happened a few chapters before, a few verses before. There was a man who was lame from birth, right? His ankles did not work. He's 40 years old. And John and Peter go to him, and, and Peter, through the power of the Holy Spirit, heal, in the name of Jesus, heals his ankles. Nobody says, that's not fair. Right? So in one moment, heaven breaks in and does something in one second, one moment that would take a long time with modern medicine, if possible at all, and of course would take heaven finally to be fully healed. Does that make sense? So we like it there. Judgment on the other side breaks in in an instant as well. Normally, when you're a hypocrite, normally when you and I do what Ananias and Sapphira do, God forbid that we do, it takes a lifetime to die. Does that make sense? Just a slow death. The water gets more and more poisonous. And maybe it's not until you're 70 or 80 or some age where people finally go, I'm going to stay away from that person. That's rat poison. So in some way, God shows mercy to, the, to that group by taking him out as fast as he did. Does that make sense? It's an instantaneous judgment. You see this in the Old Testament with Uzzah. Uh, remember the story of the ark going to Israel, David's taking her to the, to the city of David at the time, and uh, it's on a cart, and it, tr and it buckles, and Uzzah reaches out to grab it. What a great thing to do. Dead, boom. And David's angry. And I think we should be like, why? Why are you doing this judgment? It's a great question. Now, David was wrong, wasn't he? The, the law says the ark is to be carried with poles by the Levites, when you carry the ark with poles the way God wanted it to be carried, it would not have tipped. So oftentimes the things we do to make things better ends up making it worse. And so, yes, Uzzah, in a sad way, was the recipient of that judgment. But we're all going to die. We're all going to age. We're all going to see the experience of the fall. And the question is, when we read this passage, are we aware of that fact that, he, that it was sped up with them but there is a sense of death for each of us as we are hypocrites, as we go against God. So what is this hypocrisy? I want to just talk about hypocrisy for a moment, the actual sin of Ananias and Sapphira. Um, I've been looking at, at Luke this week, chapters 12 through 14. Don't worry, I'm not going to read all that to you. But I want to just highlight a few places. I should have saved the, the location. In chapter 12 of Luke, or chapter 11... Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. Remember, the Pharisees were, just to kind of give a caricature, if you will, the ones who kind of lived by the law and thought what they did outwardly would work and save them. And so Jesus is pronouncing the woes to the Pharisees, and the lawyers pop in and say, well, what about us? What you're saying to them seems really harsh. You're insulting us. And Jesus says, uh, yeah, you too. You are, you know, and he starts pronouncing the woes onto the, the lawyers. So I meet people who are going to law school and I read them that passage. 
Shane, see what I'm saying? Doesn't always work. Chapter 12. In the meantime, he starts talking to the, his disciples. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will be revealed or hidden, excuse me, that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. The problem with hypocrisy, a hypocrite, the, the word comes from the masks in the Greek culture. The problem with hypocrisy is it's trying to pretend to be one thing, right, with the mask, but all the while you're tricking the people around you. And the problem I think we have is that so often we love the fruit of hypocrisy that we just want to ignore it and not worry about it. Or we recognize that everything we do has a little bit of hypocrisy in it. But Jesus takes it very seriously. So as you trek through chapter 12, he says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you to fear. Fear him who after he is killed has authority to cast you into hell. Very harsh language. But he goes on to say, yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies and not one of them is forgotten before God? So what he's starting to do is starting to say, I care for the weak. I care for those who are harmed by hypocrisy. Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You're more value than sparrows. And then he goes into the sin of blasphemy. And the sin of blasphemy is denying the presence of the Holy Spirit. And as you trek what Jesus is doing in Luke 12 and, and compare it with Acts chapter 4 and 5, I think you see a case study for the way a person blasphemes the Holy Spirit by denying the Holy Spirit, by pretending to be flowing out of the Spirit on one side of the pool, but you're not receiving the gift on the other side. You're living out of your own resources. And Ananias and Sapphira were seeking to do that and give out of that power. Does that make sense? So what do we do with that? Money isn't the point, right? Money is not the point. The point is the presence and the reality of the Holy Spirit. In this same passage, Luke goes right into the parable of the rich fool. Remember the rich fool? He, he plan, he's planning and he's doing his business as a, as a, uh, as a farmer and ample amounts of, of um, growth. And he decides to tear down his old barns and rebuild them to have bigger barns. And then the, the key line is so that he could eat, drink, and be merry. There's no reference to God in that. There's no sense that God brought the produce. That is blasphemy. To start to have the recipient of, be the recipient of God's good, gracious gifts, but to live as if you were the one that did it on your own. And then Jesus goes right into Luke 12. Do not be anxious about what you do, about what you eat, about what you drink. And so the point I'm drawing out from Luke 12 is that when we are aware of our connection to God and his banquet, it will flow into the way we give and the way we live our lives. So, wow, it's a lot, it's a lot. I'm at 31 minutes. I want to close with an illustration that's also from Luke. So it's a Bible verse, the parable of the banquet. It's, I was reading it this week and just puzzling over it because it, it hits at this hypocrisy. The story is, Jesus has just told the Pharisees, when you hold a feast, don't 
invite the famous people. Don't invite the popular people. Don't invite the important people. Invite the lame and the blind and the poor. And I remember hearing a sermon preached on that at chapel when I was in seminary. And it, I've wrestled with that. I, I invite people I like. Don't you? Like when we go to the game, when we go to parties, when we live our lives, we do that. Can we all name the fact that we're tempted to be hypocrites? Can we all identify with the fact that we're tempted to surround ourselves with the people that make us feel better? And then he goes right into this parable of the wedding banquet where he says, um, there was a man, he had a, a huge feast and he invited all of the people you would want there and none of them wanted to come. It's in, it's in Luke 14. And the three excuses were, first one, check this, these excuses out. I just bought a field and I have to go check it out. So I'm not gonna come to your wedding feast because I own a field I've gotta go look at. That's the first one. The second excuse was, I just bought a team of oxen. I've got to go check out my oxen. And the third excuse was, I just, have, I just got married. Like most married couples would love to go to a wedding feast, but not this one. I just got married. I'm busy. I can't come. So what does the, uh, the feast, the banquet thrower do? He tells his servants, go find the blind. Go find the poor. Go find the lame and bring them in. And they come. They show up. Why? What is it about someone who's blind or poor or lame? What is it that would make that person come to the wedding? And then they go out and find even more people in distant streets that are also broken. What is it? The closest we get to our pre-fallen condition is probably in our weakness and our frailty. See, in Genesis, before the fall, we would have relied on Jesus and the Holy Spirit and, the, and the heavenly, our Heavenly Father. We would have recognized every breath comes from Him. It's in the fall. The fall didn't create the distance. The fall created our own self, self-adequacy. The fall creates the sense that I can do it on my own. Sin in my heart says I don't need Him until there's a problem. And so that banquet story shows us, and what the Holy Spirit shows us, is we must have that Holy Spirit feeding us continually. Are you seeing everything in your life connected to that? Is God the source of everything for you? If he is, then giving will be like nothing. It'll be very easy, because you're getting everything from him. So here's the challenge, and here's the hardest thing to say is what, how, how are we as, as giving? How are we at giving physically, finances? How are we at giving our time? I can confess that my knee-jerk reaction, and my wife will attest to it, is to protect my time. I just want to protect my resources. So I confess that before you. I want to, con- I want to make sure that we have enough but when I'm walking with the Lord, when I'm embracing the reality that he is everything, I find I'm able to let go and let loose a little bit more. Right? In Hebrews chapter 12, throw off everything that so easily entangles you. Right? What is it that's, that you're gripping to? What life things are you holding on to? The goal is not to have more money as a church. The goal is not to have more money for each other. The goal 
is that we would be more connected to the Holy Spirit because we see every breath we take, every moment of life is given as a gift from him and that's flowing into us. And the only way we can experience that is by giving to others. So, that's a hard one. Is that a sermon on giving? I don't know. But it's a sermon on living out of the gospel. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so tempted, so tempted to be like Ananias and Sapphira. Well, I don't think anybody in this room would go as far, I would hope, as to lie straight to the face of an apostle or to you. But Lord, we know in our hearts so often we are blinded to ourselves. We're blinded to the way we grab on to our own lives. We grab on to our own resources as if we're the ones that made them, as if we're the ones that created them, as if we're the ones that sort of truly own them. Holy Spirit, I need you. And I know my brothers and my sisters here in this congregation need you to believe that everything we have comes from you that you are the good shepherd and that you have provided all of our needs. So Holy Spirit, I pray that as a congregation and as individuals, your gospel would free us up to let go of all the things we cling to and run the race for your glory. Amen.